Method and Madness is a true crime podcast dealing with events of violence that may be disturbing to some. This episode includes discussion of suicide. Listener discretion is advised. An event that some would later call the murder of 38 people. This is Method and Madness, Episode 31, Heaven's Gate, Ground Control. I'm your host, Don Gandhi. The body was dismembered. A ransom note was discovered. Hiker stumbled upon the nude body of a local... Police are looking into the brutal slaying of a young woman. There may be a clue in a released 911 call. The victim said she was stalked for five years. Held captive inside a storage container. It was a twisted mix of obsession and revenge. No weapon has been located. Shot while asleep in their beds. Method and Madness. Previously on Method and Madness. The cult of Heaven's Gate began in 1975, had at its height about 200 members, all seeking an afterlife that they would reach via a UFO. Members came and went over the years, leaving behind their regular lives and all of their earthly possessions to follow T and Doe, who had the key to the next level. After the 1985 death of cult leader T, Bonnie Nettles, Her spiritual partner, Doe, Marshall Herf Applewhite, continued on with the group. He claimed to be Jesus that he had returned to Earth after 2,000 years, looking for students he had worked with previously, that in the 70s, he had taken over the body of a male in his 40s. Through his teachings, members devoted their lives to the group shedding their individuality and dedicating themselves to a life of celibacy in order to perfect themselves for entry into the kingdom of heaven. Some told their friends or loved ones that they were from Star Trek as if it were a real physical place. Applewhite and Nettles had said several times that a UFO was coming to take the group to the kingdom of heaven. But after multiple attempts to get picked up, The UFOs never showed. Finally, in 1995, the sighting of a new comet was taken as an omen to Marshall Applewhite. The UFO was trailing behind Comet Hale-Bopp, and the group would board it on Saturday, March 22, 1997. They rented a mansion near San Diego and made money designing websites while awaiting their boarding time. Two of the members had purchased a telescope for $3,645, but returned it a week later, frustrated that they were unable to see the UFO. When the time came, the group of 39 scheduled their departure in which they took turns in three phases of taking a mixture of phenobarbital with alcohol and lying down to die. After all 39 people, ranging in age from 26 to 72 years of age, had died by suicide, 
A few former members received packages via mail, which included instructions and a video of all 39 deceased members saying their goodbyes. Former member Rio D'Angelo received his package by FedEx, delivered to his workplace. Inside was a note as well as two videos. The note read, By the time this is being read, we will have shed our containers. D'Angelo watched the video and, driven by his employer, arrived at the mansion in Rancho Santa Fe in Southern California. Once inside, he came across the horrific scene and made an anonymous call to 911. On today's episode, the conclusion of our Heaven's Gate miniseries, we discuss law enforcement's arrival to the mansion, what they found, and the investigation that ensued. We'll also look at the media's reaction to the event and why, 24 years later, this is still a story that people can't stop studying. And we'll talk about three members of Heaven's Gate that took graduation into their own hands after the March 1997 event. Finally, something is revealed about leader Bonnie Nettles, known as T, and what she may have really thought about the cult. Let's dive in. If you were listening to the radio, you'd probably hear, quite fittingly, Puff Daddy's Can't Nobody Hold Me Down playing, or I Believe I Can Fly by, well, another artist. At the movie theater, Jim Carrey was trying his best to be honest in Liar Liar, and if you turned on the TV that week, you'd be looking into the intense eyes of Marshall Applewhite, an image plastered on what seemed like every channel, and news that would provide plenty of fodder for late-night TV and for Will Ferrell and crew to parody in front of a live studio audience. It was March 26, 1997, and former member of Heaven's Gate, Rio D'Angelo, walked out of the mansion to his employer, Nick Mitsurkis, who was waiting in his car in the driveway. Masorkis later described his friend as looking white as a sheet as he got into the car and said, they did it. D'Angelo described in an interview what it was like making that gruesome discovery. It was disturbing because I'm, I'm yelling for people to see if they're still alive, and I'm also saying goodbye as I walk through. After his 1.30 p.m. 911 call and after more urgent calls from Masorkis, the San Diego County Sheriff's Department was dispatched, and at 3.30 p.m. on March 26th, Deputy Robert Brunk arrived at the scene at 18241 Kalina Norte. At first, he was trying to think of how he would tell the owners of the home about the bizarre call that had come in. But nobody answered the door, and Deputy Brunk entered through an unlocked door on the side of the house. There was no sign of forced entry. The only sound was that of a few air purifiers running. But the stench of death was present. And overwhelming. He came across ten bodies and then went outside to await backup. The computer that's like Star Trek, that's flashing red alert on the thing, it's like you're, you're kind of pinching yourself going, is this really happening? When uh, our partners arrived, 
that's when we decided to go back in and go through the entire house just and it was just the two of us um, and counted out how many people were there and uh, what rooms they were in and I basically checked people for signs of life by rigor mortis. Twelve homicide detectives arrived, as well as supervisors and top administrators with the district attorney's office. The scene was described by officers as surreal and disturbing. Thirty-nine bodies were discovered in various rooms of the house, including all seven of the bedrooms. They were found lying face up, wearing black pants, brand new Nikes, and a shirt with the away team patch, that reference to Star Trek. On their left hands were the gold wedding bands. Remember, they had previously had a ceremony where they married Applewhite. And 37 of them were partially draped with a purple cloth with their arms at their sides. Each had a small personal tote bag with items inside like identification. Some members had $5.75 in their pocket, which has been rumored to be a reference to a Mark Twain quote about the price it takes to get to heaven. Two of the female bodies had plastic bags over their heads, their hands gripping the bottom of the bag. In one bedroom were several cups of orange liquid, which preliminarily tested positive for Vicodin. There were no notes, nothing that would clue police in immediately on what had happened. Police thought it was 39 male bodies due to the haircuts, and that is how the media reported the event, despite that it was actually 21 women and 18 men. Other misinformation was that the men were all white and between the ages of 18 and 24. Before long, the scene was a media circus, cameras all around the mansion capturing the images of bodies being removed from the home on gurneys and loaded into vans from the L.A. County Coroner's Office, who were there to assist San Diego authorities. Helicopters circling the area, news vans lining up and down the streets. Wallpaper inside the home, as well as marble floors, would have to be repaired as the gurneys going in and out to move the 39 bodies did that much damage. There was also blood splatter on the walls. The event quickly became national and even world news and conjured up bad memories of Jonestown and Waco. The public wanted to know everything about the 39 people. What led to their deaths? Who were they? And what could they possibly believe to compel them? to die by suicide as a group. Soon, video taken from inside the mansion was running on news outlets everywhere, the footage of bodies lying neatly, peacefully, only their legs and feet showing from underneath the purple shrouds, the black pants and brand-new black Nikes, room after room, some in bunk beds with duffel bags next to them. One male had a baseball cap, with a picture of an alien on it. All but 15 next of kin were contacted, based on identification found on the bodies and in the duffel bags. Eventually, all of the next of kin were also tracked down, and once they were notified, all victims' names were released to the media. But in those initial days, there wasn't much known about the victims. 
and a 24-hour phone number was provided only to the next of kin to contact the San Diego County Medical Examiner for inquiries about the deceased. And so began the process of law enforcement trying to piece together the circumstances and investigate what this group was involved in, who they were, and whether or not homicide was a factor. Items taken from the home to aid in the investigation included videotapes, computers and discs, letters, photos, cases of toothpaste and gallons of ice cream, and the ledger the group kept to log expenses, as well as a painting of an alien. The mansion was situated in what's been described as a picturesque setting of eucalyptus trees, estates with gated entrances, pastures with horses, a wealthy neighborhood where people come when they're seeking privacy. It was an unlikely shelter for a religious group, a cult, to seek out. The mansion, built in 1983, included a four-car garage, a pool, and tennis courts, amenities that didn't get used by Marshall Applewhite and his students. People living in the neighborhood were interviewed and said that the tenants had only been there since the previous October, and were quiet, kept to themselves, identified themselves as monks, and wore matching outfits, usually all white or all black. Several neighbors reported being shocked over headlines like, Mansion of Death Yields 39 Bodies. They never had any hint that there were that many people staying there or that anything deadly would occur. After the bodies were moved, journalists captured photos of employees with the medical examiner's office heads in their hands, emotionally and physically, worn down by the grueling task of unloading 39 corpses. The bodies were stored in a 40-foot trailer awaiting autopsies, while the media continued to report out that 39 men had died in a mansion due to possible mass suicide. The autopsies were conducted at the county medical examiner's office, where toxicology screenings and other tests were done to determine the cause and manner of death. After the autopsies, the public learned that six of the 18 male members had been castrated, their testicles removed, with surgical scars that appeared to be years old. The public's reaction to this detail was nothing short of bewilderment. Doctors explained that the only reason to undergo castration outside of treatment for testicular cancer would be to reduce sex drive. A urologist, Dr. Daniel Smiley, said that male aggressiveness and sex drive are mostly tied to testosterone, which is supplied by the testicles, and that once the testicles are removed, the male hormones that normally balance the female hormones in the male body lose their potency. The autopsies, along with evidence found at the scene, indicated that 37 of the members of Heaven's Gate had been assisted in their deaths by having a plastic bag placed over their heads after consuming the deadly mixture of drugs and alcohol. The order in which the deadly cocktail was consumed was determined by the levels of decomposition and the circumstances in which the bodies were left. The drugs they consumed would have made them unconscious the volume of pills taken would have surely killed them, but the bags were placed over their heads to asphyxiate them for good measure. The last two to die were Julie Lamontagne, Lavodi, and Susan Strom, Genodi, both nurses. 
Because theirs were the only bodies actually discovered with bags over their heads, that led to the conclusion that the first 37 to die had the bags removed and the shrouds draped over them. Although there are reports that Judith Rowland Wendody also had a bag over her head, which means she died shortly before the two nurses. The blood spatter found inside the mansion came from at least one of the bodies that had bloated and seeped bodily fluids. By the end of the week, law enforcement acknowledged that while there were still many questions remaining about the event, they had concluded their investigation into the deaths and determined that there was no sign of homicide. The medical examiner's office ruled all 39 deaths as a result of suicide from ingesting a lethal amount of barbiturates, the equivalent of about 50 tablets per person. Others were piecing together the deaths and their own experiences with the members. A clerk at the store where two members had purchased that high-tech telescope recalled their disappointment when the device was returned to the shop. The telescope was the size of a refrigerator and was programmed to find more than 64,000 celestial objects automatically. The two members were Marshall Applewhite and John Craig, a.k.a. Logan Lawson, a.k.a. Ligoti, and they had spent an hour and a half in the shop trying to learn everything they could about telescopes, but didn't seem well-versed in astronomy. They were set in their ways, not unlike many of the customers that came into the business, full of misinformation. The clerk recalled that about a week after the purchase, one of the men had called him disappointed that they'd located Comet Hale Bop, but didn't see what was trailing it. The clerk said he responded jokingly, well, that's because there's nothing following it, a comment he later felt guilty for saying, given the circumstances. Some family members weren't all that surprised after not hearing a word in years and years. Other family members expressed their shock, sadness, and grief over an event that they feared but hoped would never come to fruition. They tried to warn their loved ones, had tried to talk them out of joining Marshall Applewhite, had tried to get them to return to their normal lives, but now the guilt that they weren't able to stop them was eating at some of the family and friends of those that had followed T and Doe. The father of Susan Genodi Strom didn't understand why his daughter had walked away from a bright future, a life of friends where she was close to her family. Edward, the father of Erica Chicote Ernst, said, quote, For 21 years, I tried to find them. We had one visit, maybe one phone call. She told us only that I'm doing the best, I'm happy. But I think she was brainwashed. LaDonna Golden Odie Brigado's family had little information provided to them about her whereabouts when she left her life to join Applewhite. She left behind a career as a math teacher and real estate agent, and her father hired a private investigator to locate LaDonna. Days before the suicide, the P.I. had located a P.O. box in La Jolla, not far from the mansion, and would have found LaDonna herself if he had just a little bit more time. Nichelle Nichols, the actress who starred as Lieutenant Uhura in the original Star Trek series as well as several of the films, went on Larry King Live to discuss the passing of her brother, Thomas Destody. 
She said he had cut off contact with the family 20 years prior and that he'd only gotten back in touch when their mother passed away. In 1994, he reached out to Nichelle seeking advice because the group had planned to go public. Nichelle told Larry King, quote, There's a tragic irony they should choose Hale Bop, this wonderful comic, this wonderful celestial event once in our lifetime, that it would be this event that would trigger their decision to leave their bodies, as they called it, to go on another plane. 46-year-old Margaret Melody Ella Richter was extremely intelligent and a winner of beauty pageants, described as the all-American girl. Her sister, Jean, spoke about only seeing Margaret a few times in the past 20 years, but that she would write her family letters. Jean said she had idolized her sister, and even though she knew she was part of the group, it never seemed deadly. The family of 41-year-old Jeffrey Thurstody Howard Lewis thought that the news of the 39 deaths and the cult's beliefs sounded like something similar to what Jeffrey was involved in. They never dreamed he was actually a part of it until receiving the call from officials. There is one thing up for debate. Did the members willingly die by suicide, or had they been manipulated? One family member has said that there were, quote, 38 murders and one suicide. The Christian community had some things to say, too. In Washington, D.C., Reverend Philip Wagman called the whole thing a sad, sad thing. And speaking of the meaning of Easter, said, quote, It is not like a cult group tragically making a serious mistake, hoping to catch on to an extraterrestrial spacecraft. Evangelist Reverend Billy Graham said the mass suicide was the work of the devil, and speaking on Marshall Applewhite said, He becomes God to himself and to those around him. In back of it all is the devil. As photos and video footage were released, the public were getting more information about the group. Rio D'Angelo's employer, Nick Masorka, said that what the cult had left behind was like a press release. And perhaps it was. Remember, the cult members had a lot to say in those final moments about how they would be talked about in the media. They were aware and attempted to control that narrative as much as possible. Sociologists stepped forward to clarify many of the misconceptions about cults in general. Robert Balch, a sociology professor, had gone undercover to be recruited by Heaven's Gate and had a fellow sociologist join him back in the 70s. They met Tian Do and spent a great deal of time with the group. Balt kept a secret record of everything he witnessed and has said there was no authority structure and that the focus was only on your own overcoming. Rumors about the cult and assumptions made in the media were dispelled by those members that remained. Was this an accurate representation of how things really happened within the group? Or does that show the hold that Marshall Applewhite has on his followers even after his death? As I said at the top of the first episode, there's a lot of sensationalism around this case, but it needs no exaggeration. The truth is strange enough. And some of the surviving members have confirmed rumors, which have also been backed up by proof. For instance... The group had purchased alien abduction insurance from Goodfellow Rebecca Ingrams Pearson Insurance Company, a $1,000 policy 
that covered abduction, impregnation, or death caused by aliens. After the news of the cult's death, the company stopped providing policies related to aliens. Now, all that is surprisingly true. And that's why hearing from former members or the folks that still consider themselves students of Tiendo can be enlightening, filling in the gaps on what it was actually like day to day and whether or not Marshall Applewhite was threatening or violent. On the other hand, how much of that information can really be trusted? Sawyer, who had left the group after what he called flunking out, still to this day believes in T's and Doe's teachings and thinks he'll one day pass through Heaven's Gate. When challenged about his beliefs, particularly regarding the UFO that picked up the group, Sawyer has said that humans were not permitted to see the UFO, so we didn't see them get picked up. Their souls were picked up and the vehicles left behind. Dick Jocelyn, the former member that was with the group for years, defended the group and thought of it as more of a mistake than a tragedy. Michael Conyers, who left the group in 1988, said that Applewhite utilized what experts call indoctrination, where everyone does everything in the same way as their fellow members. Conyers said, quote, everything was designed to be an exact duplicate. You were not to come up with, well, I'm going to make the pancakes this big. There was a mixture, a size, how long you cooked it one side, how much the burner was on, how many a person got, how the syrup was poured on it, everything. While these former members continued on with their lives, whether they still believed in tea and dough or not, there were some that felt they had missed out. At about 12.17, we got to the hotel. We asked for the key. We told the manager what we believed was going on, uh, that we had two people that may uh, have attempted to commit suicide or maybe in the process of attempting to commit suicide. Uh, we knocked on the door. There was no answer. We did uh, open up the door with a key and found one uh, person deceased in the hotel room and another person unconscious. Uh, we woke him up, the deputies woke him up, and were able to keep him awake until uh, the fire department arrived. Deceased had a plastic bag over his head. He was on his, uh, he was face down. Uh, there was another bag with a hole in it on the other side of the room. Remember Suzanne Sylvia Silvodi Cook, who died with the group in March 1997? She was the one married to Wayne Cook, the man who had left the cult and returned, but ultimately left again permanently in 1994, due to infighting among the group and what he perceived as a lack of purpose. The man who had always shown an interest in stars and the heavens seemed sad in an interview with the New York Times, which was conducted after the mass suicide. And he said, quote, I'm going to drop my shell one of these days. Hopefully I will have another chance. In May, just weeks after the mass suicide, he sent a letter and videotape to his daughter Kelly, who had been abandoned by her parents at the age of 10 and left to be raised by her grandmother. In the letter, Wayne Cook wrote, It seems likely that I will be rescheduled for a future incarnation into a future classroom to complete my overcoming of mammalian behavior and to strengthen my connection with the next level above human. Wayne had said on the video, 
I am not dying. I'm not going to be dead. I'm simply leaving this vehicle. After Kelly received the package from her father, she alerted the authorities that she feared he and another man were planning to die by suicide in San Diego. Officers responded to room 222 at the Holiday Inn Express in Encinitas, California, to find a scene similar to that of the mansion in Rancho Santa Fe, just on a smaller scale. Mr. Cook deceased and another man, Charles Humphreys, unconscious. Charles was hospitalized and later recovered, but he was found dead in a tent in Arizona the following year. He had died by suicide. And another member, James, a.k.a. Gabby, a.k.a. Gabodi Perky, died by suicide on May 13, 1997, in an attempt to catch up with his fellow members. Over the past 24 years, the daughter of Bonnie Nettles, Terry, has spoken about her mother and revealed that when her mom first went off with Marshall Herf Applewhite, she really struggled to understand. Bonnie wrote stacks of letters to her daughter in the 70s and 80s, letters about Doe and their mission, but Terry had no idea her mom was sick with cancer or that she had lost an eye because of it. It wasn't until after Bonnie's death that two members of Heaven's Gate showed up at Terry's college and awkwardly shared the news. Terry has spoken about a cassette tape Marshall Applewhite mailed her, a grieving doe, making an attempt to apologize for not letting Bonnie's family know she'd been terminally ill. It was also revealed in Time magazine in 1997, as well as in the HBO documentary, that in the early 80s, the tone of the letters that Bonnie was sending her daughter changed. Among other things, she told her daughter to, quote, conform to society. It was 1984 when Bonnie wrote that she didn't know how to get out and that there wasn't a graceful way to leave. Terry has said, quote, I had the feeling that she kind of wanted out. That was my interpretation. It was the way she phrased things. She also believes that if her mother hadn't passed away, she would never have led the group to mass suicide. Surviving members to this day defend their tea, that she was only referring to getting out of the human world, that Terry wasn't dedicated enough to join the group so she might as well conform to society. They will seriously say anything as long as it fits their narrative. In 1999, there was an estate sale held at a warehouse where items from inside the Heaven's Gate mansion were auctioned off. Prospective buyers ranged from the curious to the like-minded to owners of odd roadside museums. Today, people were hoping to bring home a piece of history. There were the boxes filled with cult members' belongings. There was some artwork and a van, everyday items like a dryer and pots and pans, even a big screen TV. But these are what ultimately got a lot of attention from auction goers, the infamous bunk beds where 39 Heaven's Gate cult members committed suicide. That's where they went. That's where they took their trip. The big news story is the beds right there. And so we're just curious. Yeah, kind of curious. See if they're actually going to give away. About 700 people showed up. Some were serious bidders for cult belongings here at the county warehouse. Others were just curious. What brings you out here? Circle shrouds. 
The items came from this multi-million dollar Rancho Santa Fe estate. Two years ago, Heaven's Gate cult members wearing purple shrouds and Nikes. A book collection went for $340. A Star Trek encyclopedia was included, for example. The group's three vehicles, the bunk beds, all auctioned off. Some bidders told the press that they were going to sell the items on eBay for a profit. Others intended on making a movie about the group and wanted to recreate the scene at the mansion as accurately as possible. The proceeds from the auction were split among the 39 members' families. The house at 18241 Kalina Norte was purchased for a low price and torn down. A new house has been built, and the street name changed. There's about four members left, those that still believe and exist stateside. And it appears there's some infighting amongst them, mixed messages regarding what T and Doe actually taught, whether or not they still want their messages shared, whether or not they even appointed a messenger. Two people run the website, heavensgate.com. They don't accept new membership because, according to them, the group ended in 1997. However, people still contact them looking for a place to belong. Member Carlin Odie has said that the only request T and Doe ever made was for their survivors to simply disseminate information. In the HBO doc, guests and potential recruits at one of the lectures given by Heaven's Gate sometime in the 90s asked the members how they knew they weren't just deluding themselves. Member Sawyer responded at the time, it's none of anyone's business if we're deluding ourselves which struck me as the words of someone not entirely confident in their beliefs and dismissive of the group's families. And that's the sad story of Heaven's Gate. I started out with this case intrigued and completely fascinated by the psychology of cults and why people join them, in a sense still haunted by the images of Marshall Applewhite and the scene at the mansion, perplexed that someone in the modern day could come forward and claim to be Jesus, that creating your own rules and convincing others that you're right could lead to so much tragedy. What I came away with was some insight, but really more questions than answers. Maybe this was just a bunch of people incapable of thinking for themselves. Maybe they weren't all in. Maybe they felt pressured Those goodbye statements where they poured so much into making sure that we, the ones that would be left to make sense of it, wouldn't blame anyone, wouldn't point a finger at their precious dough. And behind the camera, Applewhite leading the questions, in some ways seemingly leading the responses, it's very apparent that he cared so much about what the public would think. Maybe I just can't get past the fact, or maybe I struggle to comprehend that his 38 followers really truly believed, without a speck of proof, without a trace of evidence left behind, that they were selected by T, God, to board a UFO that only they could see, just not with a high-powered telescope that they'd purchased, apparently. I do wonder if any of them started to have regrets in those final moments of consciousness, At least a few of them came across as not entirely confident in those final goodbyes. Did the last two to die feel a heaviness or responsibility for assisting the others? Did any of them, even one, 
feel like they were in too deep, but that they couldn't leave at that point. And so it's the sad reality about the fate of 39 people who went on camera days before their deaths, convincing us that they were passionate about what they were doing. They just wanted something so badly, so they tried to shove a square into a circle and called it a miracle. If you suspect that someone you know may be in a cult and would like to seek help, visit freedomofmind.com. Check the show notes for more information. Thank you for listening to Method and Madness, truly, and thank you for so much of the positive feedback that I've been receiving via email and on social media. This is an independent podcast, so the best way you can support it is to leave a five-star review on Apple Podcast or on Podchaser. I'm on Twitter at MethodPod and on Instagram at Method and Madness Pod. There's a Method and Madness page on Facebook as well. To chat or discuss the episode, reach out to me at methodandmadnesspod at gmail.com. Method and Madness is researched, written, and hosted by me. It is sound edited by Moen Spo. Thank you to Faith and John of the Mission Rejected podcast and to Rohan for lending their voices for the theme music. Method and Madness is a true crime podcast dealing with dark and disturbing subject matter. For crisis support, text hello to 741-741.